Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 2. And I want to draw your attention this morning to verses 8 through 10. And of course, Paul, writing here to the Colossians uh, church, he says, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the rudiments, or the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. It seems from the very beginning of the church of Jesus Christ quite literally from its inception, there has always been counterfeiters who are emissaries of the enemy who have set out to corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, uh, writing to the Galatians, warned of this very thing when he said there in chapter 1, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed." You know, there have been many, many people, Joseph Smith being one, the prophet of the Mormon church, who said that an angel came to him and preached to him the correct gospel, that up until his time, which by that time had been 1,800 years Everybody who came before him was wrong. The gospel had been lost, you see. Nowhere to be found until Joseph Smith, the prophet of the Mormon church, decided to restore it. But yet Paul says in the book of Galatians that though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than that which had already been preached, let him be accursed. And yet there are 14 million people, as my last count was that I checked on, that the Mormon church says it belongs to it, who believe that an angel of God actually came and preached an an entirely different gospel. And yet the scripture is very clear. So there's been counterfeiters. There, There are those who would seek to pervert, as Paul says, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Counterfeiters, as I said. Highly crafted, no doubt, cunning, but nothing new. The very nature of the word counterfeit is false, forged. It comes from an old Anglo-French counterfeit, which means to copy or to imitate. Now, the problem with copies, of course, and imitations is that sometimes they're really good. Very good. When we think of counterfeiting, we tend to think in the realm of monetary terms, you know. Uh, In fact, uh, it is one of the oldest forms of forgery that there is, dating back to the 4th century, the counterfeiting of money. 
And it has lasted, really, until this present time. It's counterfeiting. No matter how many times we try to come up with ways to beat counterfeiting, you'll notice some of your money today doesn't... Those of us who are older now, the money today looks nothing like it did when we were kids. You know, now it's got all kinds of funny colors and watermarks and little stuff, strands that are placed through it. And all those things have been added over the years in order to counteract counterfeiting, try to defeat it. Because every time they come up with a measure, the counterfeiters, of course, come up with a new one to defeat it and are able to copy it. But counterfeiting goes way beyond monetary. It goes way beyond that. Whenever there is something of great value, when you think about it, because man and his depraved nature, because of the evil that is in him, he always seeks to gain those things that are precious by the easiest way possible. Tries to obtain them that way. Of course, when you're dealing with the issue of counterfeiting money, they simply want to print it themselves. Seems like the easiest way to them to get it. Let's just print up a bunch of it. In fact, one time as a young kid, uh, it's not my notes, but I'll give it to you for free. I was in graphic arts for many years. I, I, I enjoyed it. I was, uh, you know, I, I took it in high school and I actually became the protege of my printing instructor and I became very good at it. And so we learned every aspect of it. And I was so trusted in our school that I was the one who printed up the grade cards. <laughs> Let that one mull around in your brain for a minute. Yes, I could have made some extra money on the side, but I didn't. I didn't. But what I did do one time, totally innocent on my behalf, I want you to know this, because I wasn't serving the Lord, but I was totally innocent of this. I got this bright idea for a poster. I thought, yeah, wouldn't it be cool to have a poster of nothing but $20 bills? I just thought that would be really cool. I thought that would look cool. As I, you know. So I went up into the camera room, and I took out a $20 bill. And I photographed it, front and back. And then I proceeded. Of course, Mr. Farlander wasn't there. I was the one in charge of the printing room, and I was doing all the photography. And I made up a nice big, I, I duplicated, had it all on the, on the uh, printout. Uh, back then, it was a plate that we would burn to. And literally, I had it on the, the offset machine, and I had the color just right, and I kept adjusting it, and it was perfect. And I was cranking out these, <laughs> these big sheets of $20 bills <laughs> that I was going to give to my friends as posters. When Mr. Fraunfelter came in, or when uh, Farlander came in, uh, he was not pleased, to say the least, and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm making posters. He goes, you're counterfeiting the U.S. government's money. And so I got this long lecture and while I was taking scissors to him. And uh, he wouldn't even let me take one of them home and put on my wall. And uh, so uh, in my behalf, it was innocent. But people have been doing it for centuries. They, anytime there's been money to be made, the easiest way to get it sometimes is just to print it. And they still do it. They still do it. So... There's an interesting story, and I, I realize that this really has nothing to do with counterfeiting, but I think it's applicable to my point. There was a guy in history, maybe some of you remember, his name was Willie Sutton, who was a famous bank robber. And 
you know, during the 30s and 40s. And, of course, when they asked Willie, he had been caught, and they asked him, why do you rob banks? Because he was good at it. He simply said, because that's where the money's at. And he was right. You know, my point is that men always try to obtain that which is very valuable by the easiest means possible. They always have. They don't want to put any labor into it and do it the way normal people do it. They want to do it fast and quick and easy. The craft of counterfeiting, though, as I've said earlier, has literally been applied to anything that is of great value. One of the strangest examples of this, uh, and in my humble opinion, is the most interesting, and I have studied counterfeiting a lot. Not because I'm planning to do it, but I just, uh, you know, find it interesting. But the story of, of, of Rudy Kanuerwan, who is an Indonesian man who infiltrated the upper crust of society of wine collectors in this country, who wound up perpetrating one of the greatest wine frauds the history of the United States has ever seen, uh, which he wound up doing was selling counterfeit vintage wines for millions of dollars. It's really a fascinating story, but it's not the crime that fascinates me as a studier. It is the sophistication wherewith he was able to, you know, to perpetrate it. You see, Rudy had a, a fine taste for wine. He really did. In fact, it's been said that Rudy had the most sensitive palate that anyone had ever seen when it came to tasting wine. He fit right into the upper crust of people who would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars for a bottle of wine, if you can even imagine that kind of money. But he fit right into them. Some said that his sense of taste, for, you know, as far as his palate was concerned, was, was almost supernatural. They noted that he could simply taste a glass of wine. And Rudy could tell you not only the country that it was from, but he could tell you the vineyard in which it was grown. And he could tell you the vintage, the year. And then he would go on and in great detail he would give you the characteristics of the wine that he was holding in his hand and the nuances. And, and he marveled these people of the upper crust. Now, while some Somalis, is what they're called, have boasted extraordinary abilities in this area, no one was like Rudy. No one like Rudy Kanirwan. He was exceptional. He was good at it. But because of his great taste and his ability in this area, Rudy had came up with a scheme. He devised a plan that would make him lots of money. Because he had control of this extraordinary ability to taste wine, he began to buy, at great expense, very expensive, very old antique bottles of extraordinarily expensive wine money that his family had given him because they were probably in on the scheme. Rudy would then begin to taste these wines. He would actually open them. Most of the time when you buy a bottle of wine for twelve or $13,000, you don't open it. You just kind of put it in your collection. But he actually would open them. He would taste them and he would then begin to formulate how he would use cheaper wines to blend and to mix, to make it taste like this ancient wine. 
And then he went to great lengths and, and he began to print up his own labels and he would buy these exact old papers and then he would produce something that was so similar that they began to sell them at Christie's. You know, Christie's is an auction house. And he wound up making millions. It's very fascinating. He had come up with his own formulas to duplicate these, these ancient, cherished, and extremely expensive bottles of wine. And having devised these formulas, he then went about packaging them, like I said, to appear old, even though they were new. But they appeared old. And he would produce them by the case. And then he would sell them at these very prominent auction houses. In fact, some of the bottles that Rudy produced were, were counterfeit, were so good, they're still in the cellars to this day of some of the most sophisticated wine people in this country. Now, most people who found out when he finally got busted, he's in prison to this day, I believe, unless he's gotten out. But even after he got busted, many of the people, they actually took their wines and, of course, and destroyed them because they knew they were fakes. Ah, but there were some who were fooled by Rudy, who had paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for his counterfeit wine. And they now refused to, to believe that the wines are fake, even though they know the truth. Rudy went to jail for it. They proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt what he did. Because their pride, you see, their pride will not allow them to admit that they've been duped. Counterfeiting has been around for centuries, as I said. So it's no surprise where there is great value, my friends, and great worth. Men will seek to obtain it and to counterfeit it by any means. This is especially true of the gospel. The most treasured gift that has ever been given to mankind by his creator. Because of its great value, men have sought to corrupt it and to counterfeit it, as Paul has said. And as he warned the Galatians. Thus Paul said in our text this morning, he says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Counterfeiters love to fool people. They really love it. There's something in them that makes them take great pride in convincing you that something is real when it is not. Paul used the term spoil here in our text. If you look at that word in the Greek, it means to lead away as booty or as a treasure, as a prize, you see. They take great pride in it. In previous verses, you know, Paul had talked about Jesus Christ being the fullness of the Godhead bodily, which was a direct attack against the Gnostics who were trying to corrupt and to counterfeit the gospel of Jesus Christ by saying that Jesus was just a man. Not just any, they didn't say he was just any man, but he certainly wasn't God. That's what they had begun to teach. Now, but here in verse 8, Paul now begins to direct his attack toward the Judaizers. Those who were teaching the people that not only were they saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, 
but that their faith in Christ must be in conjunction with their obedience to the law of Moses. And they had to be circumcised. Now their basic philosophy was that you must first become a Jew through circumcision and then put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is what they taught and believed. But Paul warned them, beware, lest any man spoil you, lest he claim you as a prize for his own purpose, through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men. When Paul said traditions, he was not talking about just any traditions of men. He was actually pointing to something that the Jews would have understood very well. He was pointing to the Talmud. Some of you don't know what that is, but you can think of the Talmud. It, it contains books like the Mishnah and some other Jewish writings, but think of it more as an uh, ancient commentary on the law. That's what it was. It still is. So you can still volumes of it. It's huge. But this is what Paul was talking about because within the Jewish society, they lean on the Talmud. They still do to this day. Oh, they take the Word of God. Don't misunderstand me. They, they, they read the Torah. But how they interpret the Torah is by the Talmud. And so all these old you know, uh, rabbis would write down and this stuff would be entered in if they were rabbis of any account would be entered into the Talmud and these interpretations, these commentaries would then be used to determine what the Torah or the Old Testament actually said. Paul says, don't be led away by the traditions of men. There are those who had cropped up in the body of Christ who did not understand the grace of God there in Colossae. Thus they could not grasp the fullness and the total sufficiency of all that Jesus Christ had accomplished. So they began to seek a way to compensate for what they believed was lacking, you see, in the gospel. They believed that, you know, there was something missing. And what that thing was, they believed, was obedience of man, and in this case, of course, the Jews, to the law. The traditions of the fathers, in other words. But this mindset is really the rudiments of the world, is what Paul says. It's the worldly way of thinking. It seems to be reasonable on its surface, but as a seemingly sound philosophy when you think about it, but as far as the gospel is concerned, it's not good news. It's not good news at all. In fact, it is not after Christ at all. You remember back in the garden there in Genesis when the serpent began to beguile Eve. He tempted her through his philosophy and vain deceit by telling her that God was keeping something from her. The Lord had told them, you remember the story, that it, the day that they would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, in that day you shall surely die. But the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall be like him. You see, what he was effectively doing to Eve was convincing her that she was lacking something. God's holding something back from you. There's something more, you see. That was the case with Eve. But in the case of the gospel, what these guys were doing was that you're lacking something in your relationship to God. But it's always the underlying message in these false gospels is that you're missing something. There's something lacking in your walk with Christ. 
But God has said that you have everything. You don't need this one thing, but the devil convinced her, of course, uh, that is Eve, otherwise. In Colossians, there in 2.8, he says, Beware, once again, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, not after Christ. The Judaizers were teachers who had arisen within the body of Christ who tried to convince the people that they were lacking. There was something missing. Their relationship to the law. Oh, you could live by grace, they said. You could come to Christ by grace, but you had to keep the law first. You had to be circumcised. You had to come under the Jewish traditions of the men. And then you put your faith in Christ. Then you'd be okay. There must be more is what their message was. You have to do something. There must be more to it on your part. Thus, they began to counterfeit the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, they began to convince many of their heresy. People began to believe it. Even to this day, this very problem exists in the body of Christ. Today, we call it Pelagianism. That is, man has within himself, is what they believe, the ability to be righteous. Man can, on his own means, choose to do that which is good and acceptable to God. Even those who embrace semi-Pelagianism have at their core a synergistic relationship with God. It's not just Jesus, you see, but Jesus and man working synergistically, working together to bring about not only man's salvation, but his righteousness and sanctification. But the Bible, of course, teaches something quite different. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is about Jesus Christ. It's about him and about him only. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is only about him. It's all about what he has done, not about what we do. Because Jesus Christ dwells in the fullness of the Godhead bodily, it is God, therefore, that works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. The counterfeit gospels, which were prevalent at the time of Paul and unfortunately are alive and well today, say that not only do you need to have faith in Christ, but you need to keep the traditions of men. The law of Moses. You need to do, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, as it says in Philippians 2.12. They don't even acknowledge the next verse of that same passage. It says, for it's God that works in you, but do willing to do his good pleasure. Because they're so convinced that it is a synergistic relationship, you and God, you know, doing it together. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, he says, And you, being dead in your sins, and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, made alive, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. You see, Jesus, my friends, have done, has done it all. You know, a counterfeit gospel says, no, no, no. You must keep the law. You have to do something. There must, you've got to keep the rules. There must be something more. There's regulations that have to be done. You have faith in Christ and, 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 and. They keep adding to it. Have faith in Christ and. 
I always ask people when we start talking to somebody about what they believe about Jesus Christ. What's it take to be saved? When somebody says it's faith in Jesus Christ and, as soon as they say and, you can pretty much quit listening. Because you realize at that moment they have taken their eyes off of the one who has obtained all for you. And now they begin to synergistically to combine it together with human works. Counterfeiting is always adding to. Duplicating that which is so simple. In order that they might make you a trophy is what Paul says. In order that they might gloat, if you will feeling good in their selves that they have convinced someone else that their own perverse teachings are true. That they have convinced someone that they were lacking something that their relationship with Jesus would have provided completely. That's really where they gain the foothold. Satan gained it with Eve, convincing her that she was lacking something. They too convinced people that you, they're lacking something in their walk with Jesus Christ and that they need to do something more. But Paul said that you are complete in him. You're complete in him. If you're taking notes this morning, you need to underline that verse. You are complete in him. There's nothing more that needs to be done, my friends. All your forgiveness, your justification, your sanctification, and yes, your holiness is all secured in Jesus Christ. It is all about what He has done, not about what you have to do. The gospel of Jesus Christ, to put it simply, is monogistic, not synergistic. Mankind loves to think that He has something to do with it other than believe. You know, people say, well, Doug, doesn't works come into it somewhere? Well, yes, but that's the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Christ in you, he said, which is the mystery of God, the hope of glory. When you're genuinely born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit comes into that person, and all of a sudden, the quote-unquote works, the good things that we do, become second nature to the child of God. It's not something we even think about doing. It's something we do. Why? Because I'm a new creature in him. If any man be, you know, born again, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. But it's God's that is doing it, not us. In fact, if you think, according to what Paul teaches, that you have something to do with it, in order to gain God's acceptance, it is to have believed a false gospel. Whether that one thing is circumcision or baptism or whatever that synergism thing is, it is heresy according to Paul. This is what he's trying to counteract here in our verse. He's attacking it. You are complete in him is what he says. That's the bottom line for Paul. You're complete in Jesus Christ. Man, if we could get our fingers around that, the church of Jesus Christ would be so much stronger. People would walk in so much more victory in the Lord if we just understood that you are complete in Him. And you can trust that you are complete in Him because Jesus is the head of all principality and power. He has done it all for you, that which we had no ability to do ourselves. You need only to rest 
in the absolute completed work of him who loved you and gave himself for you. That's the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Simple, yes, but profound. And oh, the changes that come upon a person when they embrace it and they are complete in Jesus Christ. The difference that that makes. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we thank you that we are complete in you. And Lord, we thank you for the reminder that it is you who has done all things. It is you who suffered and died. It is you who rose from the dead. It is you, Lord, who sits at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for those, Lord Father, whom you have chosen. Help us, Lord, to yield to the Holy Spirit You said when the Holy Spirit has come, he will speak of me. Lord, Father, help us to realize that it is all about you. Lord, we love you this morning. We ask that you would be with your people, that you would remind them, Lord, whether they're sitting here or whether they're listening by radio, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that you, through Jesus Christ, have reconciled the world unto yourself. That we in him can have forgiveness of sins and restoration, Lord Father, of a relationship with you through all that Jesus Christ has accomplished. We love you. We thank you. And we bless your name this morning. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Praise the Lord. Well, the Lord bless you. The Lord... Make his face to shine upon you this week as you read ahead, and please do. Colossians just continues to get better and better and better. And so this week, you guys have a blessed week in the Lord. I love you. We'll see you.